Greetings, fellow film nerds. It's wonderful to be speaking to you again after four long weeks since the last episode. Now, I know you're expecting the normal opening to the podcast where the brash opening bars of our great theme tune by Kevin MacLeod immediately burst to life and herald the start of another mighty helping of film chat. In a few moments, that will, of course, happen. But I wanted to quickly reach out to you before that. This month, we have a new format for the pod and we're very excited about it. We put a lot of time and effort into getting it just right. Mostly it sounds great, but we did have a couple of broadband issues which we had to work around. It may sound at times like we're talking over each other, but that's just a bit of Zoom delay. Hopefully it won't be a problem and you can just imagine it's a bit of overlapping dialogue, like in a Robert Altman film, or a bit of innovative Nolan-esque sound mixing. That's all you need to know. On with the pod. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for sophisticated film nerds. Each month we bring you a range of features for you to delve into and be enlightened and entertained. Now, after six episodes, we have established a format, a style, a tone, if you will, for the podcast. Various discussions and stories from the world of film spread over two reels with an intermission to keep you company through the ups and downs of this crazy COVID world. Nonetheless, there is always room for improvement and this episode is presented to you in a fresh, updated format. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. What I also have in this new and improved format is a co-host, also called James Adamson. Hello, James. Hello, it's nice to be here. Also, you're confusing me by saying I'm also called James Adamson. You've been doing it for 24 years. Now, you're obviously familiar to our listeners, James, as you've been joining me each month for the special guest conversation slot. But now in your official co-host capacity, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Uh, yeah, I'm obviously called James Adamson because there's no ingenuity in our family. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm not as much of a film geek as uh, my father here. He, you know, he's very knowledgeable about films and geeky, geekiness. I'm more of the, I'm kind of like the modern twist you know, to quote uh, John C. Riley and Step Brothers, a wonderfully sensitive film, you've had the old bull now for the young calf. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's a, it's a good mix here. But, yeah, no, I do have a love of films, but um, I think the, the love of films are that we have for each other, that we have, are different, and that's what's good to have a nice little fresh mix in the podcast. Yeah, it's quite complimentary. Yeah, so welcome aboard, mate. I'm very excited to have you co-hosting. It's good to be here. So one thing that hasn't changed in our online uh, is our online presence on the various socials. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, I'm on Twitter on at filmenarac 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to my profile. There's also an Instagram for the podcast with the same title as my Twitter handle and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what the new format looks like in episode seven. Okay, so first up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds, uh, some film-related news, and what we watch this month. Then we have our classic feature where we try to watch something from my list of recommended or more worthy films I've been meaning to watch instead of defaulting to the Bond film on ITV4. <laughs> this month, we're looking at Martin Scorsese's 1995 gangster epic, Casino. Which I would recommend we watch. Uh, our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is the much-overlooked crime classic, Dillinger. Then the one that got away, where we look at various intriguing stories of projects that great filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the screen. This month, we're looking at cinematic giant Alfred Hitchcock's unrealized project, Kaleidoscope. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month tries and condemns Tim Burton and Marky Mark desecration of Planet of the Apes. After a brief intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. This month we're discussing the closure of many cinemas following the delayed release of the new Bond film and what this means for the future of film as a whole. But first, some messages from listeners, a.k.a. the Podcast Magazine Letters page. So first, we trailed our features for this episode on the socials over the past couple of weeks, and people have been in touch. Wardale says, I haven't seen Dillinger since I was a teenager, loved Warren Oates in the title role, and there's something about seeing Ben Johnson in these movies that makes him look like a superstar. Grant weighs in as well. I prefer the Michael Mann version of the Dillinger story. Johnny Depp is really good in the main role. Fair enough, Grant. We will argue our case in favour of the early version in this podcast and see if we can't change your mind. Friend of the pod, Mickey V, gets in touch reviewing the last episode. Uh, I hope Del Toro gets to take that ring off one day, as a proper version of Mountains of Madness would be a sight to behold. 
Regarding Netflix, now they're diversifying and seem to be more turned on source of funds for filmmakers than the suits and the studios. Perhaps Netflix should move more into the cinema side of things. Mickey, I think you'll be interested in our big conversation in real two of this episode. And finally, Mickey says, I watched Train to Busan on TV this month, and if you haven't watched it yet, you really must get your finger out, man. Yes, I recorded it when it was on, so I have to get around to that. Joe writes in about our upcoming One That Got Away feature, saying I would love to have seen Hitchcock do Kaleidoscope and could totally see him adopting Antonioni's style. What does Joe mean? Find out later in the episode. Vincent is less convinced, saying Hitchcock had already done sex and violence, so all this would have been as a copy of the European style, which I doubt he would have been able to pull off. Well, fair enough, Vincent. Let's see what you think after we've been through it. People have been talking about Sean Connery, obviously, of whom more later. Christopher gets in touch and says, apart from Bond, he was iconic as Patrick Mason in The Rock, William of Baskerville in The Name of the Rose, and I love The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, even though he regretted making it. Fair enough. There's also a lot of love for his appearance in Indiana Jones, as you might imagine. That's all from the letters page this month. Thank you very much for your comments. Let's get on with the show. Now for our monthly roundup, previously referred to as a month in the life of a busy film nerd. Now it's a month in the life of two busy film nerds. There's a little bit of film news for us to discuss and a look at what we've been watching this month. Uh, firstly, in the news, the, the first bit of news I wanted to look at was uh, Sean Connery's death, obviously, was a, a big story, probably the biggest story that happened to cinema uh, lately. Um, he's obviously uh, a massive name in cinema. And, you know, while it was, you know, it's clearly old age, he was 90 years old and, and you've got to think it was coming. It's still quite a quite a thing for a name as big as that to now be gone. Um, what I what I thought about um, Sean Connery, and talked about Bond, but he had an illustrious career outside that. There's also some cool stories that came out about Sean Connery. Um, uh, firstly, he was in an exhibition match in the early 50s when he hadn't quite made it as an actor. And he was so good that Matt Busby, the Manchester United manager, offered him a professional contract. Did you know yeah, that I did. I, I, in almost his obituaries all across Twitter, it was all about that whole Matt Busby offered him a contract of like £25 a week. Yeah, he, uh, he decided that he'd have more longevity as an actor, and I guess he kind of got that yeah, one right. This is true. There's also a brilliant story about he was uh, he was in a film in the late fifties before obviously before he hit it big with uh, Lana Turner, as a big Hollywood movie star, but she was probably on on you know on the way down at that point. Uh, she was filming here in England, and her boyfriend Johnny Stompanato was a low level mafioso. Yeah, yeah. Like, he was a kind of enforcer. And he was hearing rumours that, you know, Sean Connery and Lana Turner get a bit too cosy. He got jealous and he stormed onto set, pulled out a gun, pointed it at Sean Connery and threatened to kill him. Now, accounts vary on exactly how Sean Connery dealt with him. But what everyone agrees is that he took the gun off him, kicked the shit out of him and escorted him <laughs> off set. And which just goes to show that Sean Connery is uh, is uh, perhaps as tough offset as he was. He in front literally of is James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, as a tribute to a great film star and perhaps the most famous Scotch person of all time, I thought I'd make this the subject of our impromptu top 10, uh, Sean Connery films that aren't Bond films. You'll no doubt have seen all of his Bond films, and if not, just tune into ITV4 of an evening and you'll get the rest of them. But if you want to see his best work outside of 007, I recommend in no particular order, The Hill, Zardoz, The Rock, The Man Who Would Be King, The Name of the Rose, The Offence, Time Bandits, Highlander, the Untouchables, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. A Bridge Too Far was excluded because it was an all-star film that it was only one cast member of, and Hunt for Red October was recently in one of these impromptu top ten, so that drops out as well. Uh, did you want to throw in anything from from the news? Film um, I would say that Hunt for Red October shouldn't even be in the list because it's Sean Connery doing his accent pretending to be Russian. It's Phil. Well, it's not in the list, yeah. sir, but you've got a better reason. Yeah, I don't think it should even be that. Yeah, it's a foul film. Um, any, any other <laughs> film news? Um, not really. I've been quite busy. I've, and there's not a lot going on in the film world at the moment to actually kind of keep track of. That Sean Connery's death was, yeah. as you said, the biggest thing in the month, and it was huge. Uh, but other than that, it's been relatively quiet. I know we, um, we're going to touch on the whole closures of cinemas and how they deal with it later on. Um, We'll do that more justice then. I think that's something that we'll just kind of have to keep keep on top of um, as yeah. the restrictions and that change and open up and things like that. Um, yeah. Any other news? No, not not really. Okay. Um, so, shall we go through the films we watched this month? That's the yeah. usual thing. Um, 
I'll, I'll have a crack through first. Um, what did I watch? Uh, Overlord, I watched, which is a few years old now. It's kind of a blend of a World War II film and horror. Uh, the idea sounded really fun. Take a war film and turn it into a gory horror with shades of the old video game Castle Wolfenstein. Um, but the actual film wasn't quite as fun as that that premise promised, if you see what I mean. I don't know if you've seen it, James. I thought it was only... Is that the go. one with the Nazi zombies? Or is that another one? No, the Nazi zombies in the snow is called no, Dead no, Snow. No. This is where they parry enemy lines on D-Day and there's some weird there was, experiments. There was one on. recently. Oh, yeah, I think this... Yeah, Overlord is the one I'm thinking. I thought it was a zombie film because what pissed me off about it is that it was... Um, um, I've not seen it. Um, you'll be able to comment on it better than I do, but I saw it and I saw that it didn't get great reviews. But I'm pretty sure they used Hell's Bells in the um, in the trailer, and they misused that song. Um, yeah, I didn't see the trailer. They didn't use it in the film. It must have been. Only I, the wrong, but I do think they used it in the trailer. And Hell's Bells is a great song, and it's it's such a good horror song. And they just yeah, uh, yeah. But is it what, what was overall like? Was it good? It was all right. Like I say, the idea of it sounded really fun, but in the end, it was kind of only okay. They didn't like. Um, they sort of took a long time to introduce the idea, and then it wasn't. It wasn't quite as fun as it should have been. Yeah. Really. Um, what else did I see? I watched *License to Kill* on ITV4, which okay. is classic Bond. Tim, uh, Timothy Dalton's my favourite Bond, probably because he became Bond when I was a kid. It's obviously very on brand for one of the films I watched in a month to actually be the Bond film on ITV4. Um. Yeah, I'd, that's another debate in itself. Uh, favorite favorite bonds. Um, yeah, we could probably do a special feature. Yeah, on it. it's um, it's not um, what's his name? It's not Pierce Brosnan. Um, no, but uh, <laughs> things this month I've not been watching as many films as I have been watching TV shows. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like that I've just well. I've been I'm so happy the Mandalorian's back because it is phenomenal. The second season, that yeah. it's just it's so good. I'm pretty sure that an episode got released yesterday, so I have to watch that. Um, yeah. I tried watching that um, Nightfall. Uh, it's on Netflix, and it, it piqued my interest because I'm a I'm a history nerd. Um, history is my chosen degree. Um, but what um, what's it about? It's about the Knights Templar in Paris uh, looking for the Holy Grail. And I was I was kind of getting into it because uh, I've I'm also I also like the Assassin's Creed games, and the the, the Knights Templar are. Um, the baddies and that they're the bad guys so it was actually interesting yeah. i was interested to see it in the sense that they are actually the good guys but it's absolutely hot garbage like I, anything that is takes dramatic license and removes any historical accuracy just to make it interesting can get to fuck i tried watching that troy fall of a city shite yeah it's really mad i watched um an anime yeah. se series on netflix called uh, bloodline of zeus or something like that and it's like an anime thing, and it's actually really good. Um, I enjoyed it. Oh, I, I did. I watched Hunger again, the uh, Steve McQueen film. Um, yes, brutal yeah. film, very brutal. Um, so it's a hard watch. Yeah. Steve McQueen films are never an easy watch, which is um, a shame because he's a... yeah, except, except for except for Widows, yes, which is just a good fun heist film. A bit um, of a but yeah, Twelve Years a Slave, brutal. Shame's a bit of a but not a film wise. I'm really struggling to actually think of a film that I've actually watched this month other than. Hunger. Uh, I watched Oblivion again, the uh, Tom Cruise film. Oh yeah, I, did, I watched that. Yeah, we went see it. It's all right. It was the film that kind of started that kind of period of Tom Cruise releasing quite good films year after year because he did Edge of Tomorrow the year after. Right. Watched the Jurassic Parks again recently. They're actually the, the Jurassic Park is obviously dated now, but um, it's always a good watch. And I watched Troy, the uh, yeah. Brad Pitt one. Um, I'm really. In. Oh yeah. I'm really into my Greek Greek mythology at the moment, so it's uh, it's good. Um, but yeah, film wise, oh, I, yeah, no, it's been a bit of a hectic month. So I've yeah, I know you've had a very busy one. I've had quite a productive month watching films. I watched uh, Jason Bourne on the telly, just kind of just wallpaper while I was doing something. To be honest, I was doing something in the kitchen, and I was kind of I don't know if you've seen Jason Bourne. It's the fourth one. It's completely forgettable. Which, is that kind of an unnecessary film? It's is all that right, the one where it's in? It's a bit in Athens, and it's a bit in. Yeah, it was a bit like Born Legacy. I quite enjoyed Born Legacy, but it was like it was, okay. Yeah, the, the the main trilogy is really yeah. where it's at. Um, Other than that, I watched it. I watched Born. Yes, I watched that. I knew there was something I was missing. I, I did go. I did watch that. That was. Uh, yeah. I thought it was funny, but I also thought it was a bit too much toilet humor and kind of puerile humor from Sasha Baron Cohen, who which has, who has done that before. But I th was expecting more satire as opposed to just kind of relying on stuff like. I think it's, it's probably his problem is is that the Trump administration is beyond yeah, you satire. Can't, yeah. right? It's very difficult to satirize it because anything that you could make up to take the piss, they'll do something worse the next day. I mean, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I didn't think it was as funny as the first one, 
Um, but there were some absolutely hilarious bits. I mean, it's probably more politically significant because he, he aimed it directly at the existing administration. Um, and I have to say, Sash Baron Cohen and his co-star Maria Balakova, they've got some, they've got nerves of steel to do some of the stuff they did, like the menstruation dance. See, I didn't, I thought that was the type of humour that I didn't, didn't appreciate it. I thought there were some f moments in this one that were funnier than the original and more m memorable. Um, but that was the type of humour I was like, you know, it's just a bit, it's a bit, not that I'm opposed to, you know, that menstrual cycle, you know, kind of thing. I'm not that type of person, but it was just like, yeah, come on, you're a bit, you're a bit better than that. Like to try and just kind of get a cheap laugh. Probably the main reason. I just, I, my well. favourite moments were the ones where he was just going around parts of America asking, requesting things from American um, the American public, for example, when he goes into the bakery and says, oh, can you put a message on a cake? And it says, the Jews will not replace us. And she goes, yeah, sure, that's fine. The, the, the bits was like when he's at the, uh, it's just at the start of um, the COVID restrictions in America, which seems about four years ago now. Um, and he just starts singing, you know, yeah. let's cut, that was a chop up Obama and stuff like that. And like saying death to Obama, etc., and all this stuff. And people are just singing along. That's the best bit about his uh, comedy. I also watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, just because I was up early at the baby one Sunday morning, put on to have something to watch. And we all know about Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, fedoras, bullwhips, Nazis and supernatural artifacts and monkey spies. I mean, what more do you want, right? Uh, American Gangster I watched. Uh, this, I think, is Ridley Scott's last truly great film, although The Martian was very good. I think it actually stands comparison with other great gangster and cop films. But I guess the problem is, is that, that those films have been done so often that even though this was done very well, it didn't seem very new. But it did have some amazing sequences, like watching the heroin making its way from Southeast Asia through to America and onto the streets was really good. Um, I watched Star Wars Rise of Skywalker finally, which I've been putting off. Fucking shit. It was crap. It was absolutely mad. It just, it just pissed me off because, like, oh, Leia was actually a Jedi now. But, I mean, that could have made sense if they'd done anything with that idea in previous, in previous films, but they sort of made it up as they went along. They have a return of a character who seemed very dead in a previous film. And... Um, uh, there's also enough agents of the Sith to fill a stadium. In which case, what they're doing in the stadium and not doing anything else in the story, like turning up, infiltrating places. I just thought, I oh, just, oh, I just, it's horseshit. Oh, yeah, all the I'm Sith in the really, stadium when they're really not worshipping Palpatine, they're at a Zen at St. Petersburg game. It's like, I don't know what they're doing, uh, you know, for the rest of the film. They could have been doing something interesting in the rest yeah, of the trilogy. Yeah, like the problem with that entire trilogy was that um, they had no cohesion. They had three different directors, and then the last director jumped out, so they had to get the one from the first film in. It was just a hot mess, and that, that, that yeah. the, the one in the, what was the one in the middle? That was fucking shit. Uh, last Jedi. That, that had that one goal. Yeah. Again, I mean, the thing is, all, all of those films had some good stuff in it that just needed someone to be in control yeah. of the story, right? Um, much better and more entertaining was Big Trouble in Little China. Um, I just raided my DVD shelf on a rainy Sunday afternoon. And I just loved every second of that film. I had a massive grin in my face all the way through. Uh, anyone who hasn't seen that should immediately go and watch it. Um, and I watched Return of the Jedi just cause, because, uh, which, as always, is great apart from the film. Yeah, I, I, have, I agree that that is a really good film. But I think that the problem with that film is that it is the first hour and 20 minutes of that film are maybe not there in 20 the first hour of that film is the best star wars film you can get out of any films and then as soon as boba yep. fett is killed by accident by han solo who is blinded and turning around and bumping into him i'm like that that's when i go yeah it's from shit it, it may, i mean I, ha I have to say this it happens with a few characters in the star wars series because as, as a kid i mean obviously like you but me you know an earlier mm -hmm. generation used to collect the figures and boba fett was the coolest star wars figure and then he's up hardly in the films which was a a real waste yeah, of an interesting yeah, it's a character. Shame. I remember another film I watched. Um, it's the Nicolas Cage one. He's an arms dealer. Lord of War. It's actually quite good. It's actually, I've not seen that. What's it like? Nicolas Cage isn't doing his loud um, fanatics. It's actually it's Nicolas Cage is playing quite a, an interesting character there. And um, Jared Leto's in it as well before he uh, became all method. Um, but no, I actually really enjoyed that. What made me think of it was the, when you spoke about the sequence of heroin making its way from Southeast Asia with it. Yeah, there's a, yeah, the, a the perfect supply chain. It's literally the first 45 seconds of Lord of War, where it's bullets being made in a factory, and you, it's like that kind of angle yeah. of like you're you're literally looking just above the bullet, and it's going onto a box, and it's going onto a truck, and then it's shipped away, and you fall it right as it's loaded into the cartridge, fired into the chamber, and it follows the bullet, and it just it goes and it's, it shoots a young African boy in the head, who's a child soldier, and that's a really phenomenal. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can, yeah, you know, yeah, well, it's, that's, that's it's not, it's not great, but it's, 
It is, it is worth watching Nicolas Cage when he is in like, the movie. It, it is good, and it's it's an interesting film. I can't remember who directed it. Andrew Nichol, that's who it was. Who did he wrote, he wrote Gattaca, like The Truman him. Show. Like he wrote In Time. So he's got he's got good ideas. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it is good. There's the, yeah. the problem I have with it is like it's a lot of backwards and forwards of because basically he spends the entire film trying to yeah. get away with selling uh, illegal arms, and it's just kind of how he gets away from Interpol for yeah. the entire film. And I feel like they could have done more with it, but it is it is a, it is worth a watch just for the, that first forty five seconds alone. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's our month in film. Probably a very mainstream month in film for me, but for the benefit of the audience, those are what we watch. Mm -hmm. There's a few recommendations in there. Now for the classic feature, where we look at the list of more worthy or recommended films I've been trying to get around to watching instead of defaulting to the Bond film repeats on ITV4. I've been trying to break my mental block and get them watched and tell the lovely audience at home all about them. So far, that's enabled me to experience great movies like Lady Vengeance, Punch Drunk Love, Lady Diabolique, Let the Right One In, David Cronenberg's Crash, and Das Boot. Or Das Boat. I can't remember what I decided to call it last time. Uh, the rest of my watch list titles for this feature are Wages of Fear, Train to Busan, Hell or High Water, The Assassin, which I have watched before. I just need to watch again on someone's recommendation. Uh, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, the Oscar-winning Japanese film Departures, CSA, Confederate States of America, Short Bus, The Teller Two Sisters, and Casino, which got added last month. Um, I've decided to add a few extra things to the watch list just because it's good to keep the list going. Uh, the City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, which I really should have watched by now, Primer, Alphaville, and Boyhood. Um, I might keep adding other titles uh, from my backlog to this list. Um, the audience are making some good recommendations as well. And, and James, obviously, as the co-host, you may have films you want to add as well, things you've not seen that you want yes. to get around to uh, in the future as well. Yes, <laughs> oh, we should do that for sure. Um, in the end, we decided the film to cover this month was Casino because you, the audience, have been messaging about it and the time seemed right to see if it deserved a uh, another watch and a re-evaluation because I have seen it before, but, you know, time to see whether perhaps, as some people have said, it's as good as Goodfellas. Um, uh, also, James, after last month's special guest conversation, you became very disillusioned with Scorsese, and I thought this would be a good chance for you to... Uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes. As always, I took out the Blu-ray box and fought that urge to pull off watching the film, finally winning the psychological battle to just get on with it and press play. You, you saw it, you saw it well. I mean, I watched it when it first came out, and this was my first watch since then to give it like a re-evaluation. Um, but for the benefit of the audience, the, for those who might, might not have seen it, um, the background is this is uh, set from the 1960s through the 1980s. This is the Mafia's business in Las Vegas at its height. The film's based on real events but um, uh, and people, but the names are changed. Uh, Ace, Ross, Ace Rothstein, which is De Niro's character, is based on a bloke called Frank Rosenthal, a real guy who went from illegal sports betting to running four casinos for the Mafia. His real-life Jerry McGee became Sharon Stone's character Ginger McKenna. Uh, and Pesci's character, Nicky Santoro, is based on a guy called Anthony Solotro. The, the film, characters in the film are very similar to the, people, uh, you know, the real-life people, but apparently they changed the names to simplify the storyline. Um, and it's just you know, the rise and fall of the Mafia in, uh, in Las Vegas. Um, and obviously, one of the things that, that brought me back to watching this film, and this is probably something we can cover, is in 1995, this film came out, and it's kind of the team that did Goodfellas comes back with Casino. Most of the same gang are back again. De Niro, Joe Pesci, Thelma Shoemaker, editing several other actors from previous Scorsese productions, all the rock and roll hits, the same sort of documentary style, the voiceovers from the characters. They even used the Stones' Gimme Shelter again in a very similar context as they did in Goodfellas. Uh, he loves that, that uh, song, Scorsese. He used it in The Depart De Departed as well. I mean, when you watched it, did you think, as I did, that he was... At the time, I thought maybe he's repeating himself. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got that uh, song that they like, but I feel like if you use it as well as you do in Goodfellas, you keep just using it again and again. Did he, did he, did he have it shown in Shine a Light? Yeah. You know, the uh, <laughs> the concert filming that he did for the Rolling Stones? Yeah. yeah ironically. I'll have to check the set list. I mean, of course, that's not, of course that's not his choice, but obviously that would that would be another. Yeah. You'd have to put it down on the scoreboard as well, wouldn't you? Um, I mean, there is a reason that Scorsese did a film that was quite similar to Goodfellas. I mean, if you look at it in the context of his filmography, right, he had a classic era from 1973 to 82, you know, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and so on, um, mostly with De Niro. And they're classic films, you know, people won Oscars for them, although Scorsese didn't. Not great box office. They were seen as too downbeat, right? 
Then the rest of the 80s, Scorsese goes off and does some really different films like After Hours, Color of Money, Last Temptation of Christ, yeah? Also great films, but not big box office, except for when he has a massive film star like Tom Cruise in his film. So Scorsese's kind of being, he's, he's kind of being pushed in a certain direction of what film to make. So in the 90s, he's perfected this big style, which he then throws into Goodfellas, gets De Niro back in and has a big hit, right? He follows that with Cape Fear, which um, it's not a gangster film, but it's De Niro giving, you know, turning right. up to 11, another big film and another hit. He tries to do something different, a period drama starring Daniel Day-Lewis. And despite being a great film, it's a flop. So it's kind of understandable that after that, he went back to kind of what he was yeah. getting rewarded for, which was Casino. And, and it's kind of the same thing since then. Everything Scorsese did immediately after Casino um, flopped as well until he started working with DiCaprio because DiCaprio gets films made and watched, right? And is a good actor. So it's kind of why he did something similar, even though it's kind of a different story. Yeah. Um, I I enjoyed Casino, but I I don't think it's as good as Goodfellas. And you're right and you're saying that he kind of reverts back to type. He wants to make films... He wants to try other films like a period drama with Daniel Day-Lewis, but he also re realises it's not going to make any money, so fuck it, I'm going to have to go back to making a gangster film. In the interest of balance, I mean, it's it's quite a different story to Goodfellas in some ways because it's about higher-level mobsters. A lot of the mobsters in, in Goodfellas are, are basically soldiers, quite low-level, apart from Paul Savino. And it tells you about the story of Vegas and like a, quite massive events in the history of the Mafia. And I also think that Sharon Stone's character is more than just a mob wife. And there was no character like her in Goodfellas. Um, she was she quite an interesting both, character. Her. She's really good in the film. Um, nominated for, and she was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, she um, yeah, she did well. Um, and I think De Niro's character is more front and centre because it was more about Ray Liotta in, uh, in uh, Goodfellas. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that you got to see a De Niro-type character. He's, um, he's successful yeah. because he's obsessive about every detail. And that's why he's good. But it also means he can't really enjoy his power and wealth because he's constantly worrying about every little thing. Um, I mean, probably the biggest similarity to Goodfellas in a way is the fact that Joe Pesci plays this really violent guy. Um, and, and on the other hand, his his character in the end, he's probably, this character is probably more intelligent, and more high level than his uh, character in Goodfellas. And at the end, he sees he's had a slightly different arc. He regrets going to war with De Niro in a way. Um, but yeah, there are a lot, lot, lot of similarities there. Um, but I mean, I like Sharon Stone. She, you know, her her, her character sort of development is really interesting because she she get, made it as far as she did because she was seducing rich gamblers into casinos, and she can't carry that on when she's married, and she just feels stifled, and it ends up breaking her. I thought she had a really good, you know, really yeah. Good story it, there are similarities, and like you said, it, there's differences between it and um, Goodfellas. It's been a while since I've seen it. Actually, I'll need to give it another rewatch. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the reason people talk about Goodfellas more than Casino, I think, is that Goodfellas has got more of the, the memorable set pieces. Yeah. You know, Joe Pesci saying, do you think I'm funny? Um, that whole sequence where Radiota is being followed by the helicopter and falling apart in Goodfellas. And, and, and Casino doesn't have scenes like that. I mean, it, it, it's got a really good story, but it doesn't have those kind of those kind of scenes that people talk about or, you know, pub balls like to reenact. You know, it, it's not got any of that. Um, but it does. It has got great scenes and great style. Um, but it's not. Um, uh, it's not in the same kind of vein in, in those like big, big sequences that get people talking. Yeah. You know. I mean, I mean, most people agree with you, James. I put this question out on the socials, and the response was overwhelmingly they thought Goodfellas was better. Although they said Goodfellas was better, but they thought Casino was really good. But the vast majority yeah, it, of people prefer Goodfellas. Do you know what I mean? It's hard to get hyped up for a film that you you kind of go in with the the impression that it's not going to be as good as the film that he released five years earlier. The same way I enjoyed uh, Django Unchained yeah, I and mean, I saw Hateful Apes coming out. Yeah. I still enjoyed Hateful Eight, but I just prefer Django Unchained kind of thing with Tarantino. And I'm glad he's broken out of that uh, Western yeah. duck that he seemed to be in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. I think I liked Casino better when I watched it a second time. Um, and what I'd say is, if this were... If this, if instead of talking about films, we were talking about albums by a band, yeah, and I think Scorsese would appreciate that reference because he likes his music... I would say these are two really great albums by a band from the same era. Do you know what I mean? You can tell that they're going through the same kind of period in their in their in their back catalogue when these two albums were made. Yeah, and you can see the similarity in style and everything else. And in some ways, you could call Casino the follow-up, where they kind of took what they were doing a bit further and developed it a bit more and, and gave it more scope. But Goodfellas came first and has all the hits on it. So yeah, I, I would agree. Um, it's always nice watching a Scorsese gangster film, but it. it it does almost feel a little bit samey, but now you've got Sharon Stone's character in there. It's, it is a good film. Casino is a good film, and I enjoyed it, but, you know, it 
uh, what I like from Scorsese is that he can make a film about almost anything. And one one year he's making The Wolf of Wall Street, next year he's making, um, you know, The Irishman. He's making like different types. Of, I mean, The Irishman's another gangster film with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, technically. But um, you know, it's all about him yeah. being so versatile. I mean, Hugo, I think, was shit. Um, but it, it, it's disappointing that his other films, like Age of Innocence, sort of flopped in the films until I suppose Gang of New York. Another gang film. Um, yeah, but a different, a different approach. No, I, I think you're right. I think Scorsese. I think we all. I think you and I want Scorsese to do more different stuff. But I think sometimes you know the audience in the box office probably wanted him to make Casino because Casino was a big hit when it came out. Um, but there it is. I think having looked at it, I think it, it's not. I don't think it's reevaluated to, to be yeah, as good. Or no, it's, it's good always good. I mean, I enjoyed watching it again. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. The idea behind the feature is to draw your attention to an underrated classic and hopefully inspire you to watch it. We also like to imagine what might have been if this film had enjoyed the success it deserved. This month we're looking at a film that is less well known than it should be about a real life historical figure who is no longer as well known as he used to be. The hidden gem for episode seven is the classic John Milius crime epic from 1973, Dillinger. Okay, cool. Yeah, so... sure. Okay, cool. So you can sort of be the voice of the audience on this one. You can kind of listen in and see no. if my recommendation is enough to make you go out and watch it. Yeah. Um, so obviously the background to this film is Don, John Dillinger was a real life character. He, a real person, he led a bank of uh, a gang of bank robbers across the Midwest in the early thirties, yeah. which is so it's the great depression era. He robbed a ton of banks in several different States and local law enforcement couldn't catch them. So the FBI went after them big time. Right. And in context, there's a spate of these bank robbing gangs across the Midwest at this time. Uh, there's a rise in crime all over America because the Depression meant it was really hard to get legal work. And these bank robbers, they sparked huge interest from the press and the public. And the authorities put huge resources into catching them dead or alive. The media portrayed them as almost Robin Hood style figures, which was an exaggeration. But the banks that were getting robbed were yeah. very unpopular at the time because they were blamed for the financial crash. Sounds familiar. Um, also, the Dillinger gang in particular, they destroyed thousands of mortgage records when they were carrying out their robberies. So a lot of people in financial difficulty were saved from steep repayments or having their houses repossessed because there was no record of their mortgage anymore. Um, so, you know, th these gangs were like the 20th century equivalent of outlaws from the old Wild West. You know, instead of Billy the Kid, you've got um, Babyface Nelson and Machine Gun Kelly. Um, the most famous like characters from this era now are Bonnie and Clyde. They were the young, you know, attractive couple who committed robberies. Back then, Dillinger was the biggest name. He was public yeah. enemy number one, like officially. They, they used to have a chart, you know. Um, I don't know if they still do. And for years, the FBI had his face on the targets in their gun ranges. They had John Dillinger on the targets. Um, so he was he was big shit to the FBI. Um, and when, when you read up about these characters, they seem to be quite aware of their celebrity. They used to keep track of how they were being reported in the newspapers at the time. So they were, you know, they were interested in whether they were, you know, big news or not. No. Um, again, um, I, I don't know if you've seen Bonnie and Clyde. I watching The Highwaymen on Netflix, but I think I fell asleep. So, so Bonnie and Clyde was like a massive hit in 1967, which I think sort of rekindled interest in this era and these characters. That was a massive hit. And um, there were a few exploitation films that followed after that. And then, um, and that's probably why they're the most famous now. Dillinger, on the other hand, doesn't get as much of a mention these days. And I, I, I wonder if perhaps part of that is they didn't get like a, the same kind of, you know, hit, you know, hit film. And there was even a hit song about Bonnie and Clyde that put them in the, the world's consciousness. So, um, so John Milius, the, the director, I don't know how much you know about John, John Milius, but he was a bit of a, he is a bit of a character. He's in his like late seventies now. He, he's a right-wing gun nut who believes in that American dream of having no government, oh, okay. living in a cabin up a mountain and living off hunting and foraging. Of course, compared to all the right-wing militias you have in America now, he's like practically a Democrat, okay? But, I mean, he's he was seen quite right-wing at the time. He, he was also a surfer as a younger man and really into that whole subculture. And so he he's probably the dictionary definition of like a film maverick, like really like... He, he, he worked more as a writer and he wanted to direct, but only if he could make his films his way. Um, he wrote the scripts for or did script work on quite a lot of films you'd have heard of. Um, a couple of Dirty Harry films, Apocalypse Now, he wrote the original script for. All right. Um, uh, and did some uncredited work on Jaws. He was also credited as, quote, spiritual advisor. Oh, nice. On a Chuck Norris film called Lone Wolf McQuaid. So 
Hitler, 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 the inspiration for John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski. So he's a bit quirky, shall we say, right? Um, so as for this film, the whole thing's done on a budget, right? Because John Millius wanted to direct a film, but he wasn't quite a big enough name to get like a, a big studio behind him. Um, but because of that popularity of Bonnie and Clyde and stuff, uh, a, a sort of a B-movie studio gave him a bit of money and said, look, do, do a film about one of them. And he said, well, do Dillinger. He was the biggest name. And he, he used the opportunity to do something that was more than a B-movie, if you see what I mean. He said, I'll, I'll use this much money, but I want to make something that's more than that. And so he did. Um, funny enough, even though this is a small production, Dillinger was a really big name and it's still a big name when this came out. J. Edgar Hoover okay. was still the head of the FBI during production, although he died before it came out. And he, ins he insisted on making a statement about Dillinger that had to be read out at the end of the film, you know, condemning the, the film and saying, you know, don't glamorize these criminals. So well, it was still controversial in I, 1973. I, did, I didn't know that. Being made. <laughs> Yeah, um, and, and there is actually an epilogue, which is, you know, uh, J. Edgar Hoover in his own words about Dillinger. Um, so as well as Milius directing, you've got Warren Oates uh, playing Dillinger. Now, he's a bit overaged to play him, but he's perfect in the part. And uh, he really looks like him as well. Really, really good similarity uh, resemblance. Um, in style, the film's a lot like Peckinpah Westerns at that time because it's really gritty and grimy. Uh, it's also quite reminiscent of like the crime and police dramas of the 70s where everything's sort of very downbeat. Um, and it's mainly it's it's probably the best picture I've seen of what these Midwest towns and lives were like in the early thirties, and it also makes the the gang like really compelling characters, um, without turning them into like mythical heroes or anything. It's, you're very believable, right? Um, but it's also a cracking action film. There is really really good sort of gun you know gunfire, uh, you know uh, shootouts and car chases in this, and an interesting cast. Young Richard Dreyfus, Harry Dean Stanton is in the Alien film, uh, the first Alien film. Um, there's also some great scenes in it. There's a great phone conversation, which is totally made up, right? But they wanted to kind of establish the rivalry between Dillinger and the main FBI guys trying to catch him. So they have a scene where they're on the phone to each other, a bit contrived. And Dillinger's coming across as a bit needy. He's, ho he's, he's trying to hear, he wants to hear that he's being seen as a big name and that, that the authorities are making a big deal of catching him. And that's true. He is huge and the FBI is all over trying to catch him. But the FBI guy doesn't want to give him the satisfaction and downplays it. And Dillinger gets really frustrated and hangs up. And I thought that was a really nice scene. So it tells you a lot about the characters. Um, I have to say, I much prefer this to the Michael Mann version. I thought the Michael Mann version just turned um, Dillinger into another one of those charismatic yeah. lone hero types that, that Michael Mann does in all his um, films. I enjoyed I mean, it. I um, like it was Michael nice not Mann seeing uh, Johnny Depp be kooky again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it was a good film, but I, I, I think... I, I think this version's better, but it's not as kind of glossy or, or you know, it's, it's much more downbeat. Um, it's a very low budget film, a, a million dollars budget, which was, you know, substantial for about them, but not huge. Uh, it did $2 million at the box office, which is, puts them about the top 30 at the box office in 1973. So it did okay, um, but not as big as Bonnie and Clyde. It wasn't a hit like them. I mean, it didn't have star names and a big studio and a big director behind them. Um, and the timing of Bonnie and Clyde in the late 60s was perfect for something like Bonnie and Clyde. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, they're all the, they look like they, they just stepped off the catwalk. It was really glamorized. This is much more downbeat than that. So as a result, it didn't do that kind of business at the, at the box office and wasn't a huge, it didn't flop, did okay, well-reviewed. Um, but probably uh, Millie, John Millie has probably needed a bigger hit if, his, if he was going to get the career he wanted because he's such, so individualistic. Without a big hit, he's not going to get the opportunities he wants, I think. So that probably held him back a bit. And after this film, this is only his directorial debut, so it's not over for him. But he only made a total of six more films in his entire career. Um, he did Big Wednesday, which is the, probably the definitive surfer film. He did the Arnie, Conan the Barbarian. Um, but apart from that, he's not done anything notable. He did a lot of very crude action films. And I wonder if a bigger hit with Dillinger would have given him more opportunities and maybe he'd have found a better balance between his undoubted talent and some big films. Um, so I think this is one that deserves like a parallel universe. Right. Okay. You know, wondering no, what it might have been if this had been a bigger hit. No, I, if it's if it's on, it's um, on. I, I don't I'll, I'll give it a watch. I have time. Um, but no, it sounds, it sounds interesting. That um, you know, you know me. I love a love a film about you know a real life character, and that's a really interesting period of history that doesn't actually get covered a lot. You know, it's always your traditional World War One, World War Two. It's an interesting. A small footnote to John Milius. John Milius is also responsible for one of the most bonkers and politically unacceptable films of the 80s, uh, Red Dawn. Uh, that's not the remake, it's the one from about 1984. Now, that whole film, Red Dawn, is a kind of right, okay. mad ultra-right-wing fantasy about communists invading America. 
and the whole thing is done in the style of a Chuck Norris film. But instead of Chuck Norris, they've got the cast uh, of a teenage Brat Pack movie going after the baddies. So they've got Patrick Swayze, Charlie Sheen, Michael J. Fox's mum from Back to the Future, and Baby from Dirty Dancing with machine guns fighting communists. It is an insane film. And I have to say, it is a shame that he's not better remembered for Dillinger and instead he's kind of more remembered for that. But that does sound awesome. That's John Milius for you. (laughs) So I can understand why he's remembered for it more. Um. Now for the feature we call The One That Got Away. This is about unrealized projects that great filmmakers tried to get made, but for various reasons never saw the light of day. We look at what happened, why they didn't manage to complete the film, and what it might have been like if it had been made. For this episode, we're talking about one of the biggest names in cinema who you'd expect to have the clout and support to make whatever film he wanted. So it's intriguing to look at why he was unsuccessful. This month's One That Got Away is Alfred Hitchcock's unrealized project, Kaleidoscope. So Kaleidoscope is a film that Hitchcock was trying to make in in like the mid-60s. He was targeting 1967 for it to come out. Um, But he spent a few years prior to that on kind of planning, script, ideas, uh, some pre-production. And what he was trying to do was make a violent and sexually explicit serial killer film. Basically a big step further than what he did with Psycho. Um, He also wanted to film it in a completely different style than he usually did. So, I mean... Everyone knows Hitchcock's background. He was the master of suspense. He hit it big in Britain in the 20s and 30s, outgrew the British film industry, went and hit it big in America in the 40s. And then when the studio system, the old system where the producers were in charge broke down, he became the absolute king of cinema in the 50s. He was the biggest director around with, you know, Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and a bunch of others. He was just massive in the 50s. In 1960, he hit hit it big with... um, Psycho, which is slightly different from other films that he'd done as well. It was shot on a lower budget and it was essentially the kind of the first slasher movie and really shocked people at the time, although it's probably not so shocking now, uh, and was a massive hit. And then he did The Birds, which was another horror film, um, you know, literally birds seeming to try and wipe out the humans. It was another big horror classic. And so from your point of view, James, I mean, I mean, Hitchcock seems like an older director to me. And you're like one generation um, further removed from that. So, I mean, how did Hitchcock first Hitchcock on my watch was Rebecca, and I thought it was a bit boring um, and a bit shit. Looking back on it. It is a bit boring and a bit shit, in my opinion. I don't... That's the type of film that I just won't go in for. But the next one I watched was Rear Window. Now, Rear Window is awesome. It's one of my favourite films. Um, just because the thing that impresses me more than anything is that it was made 66-odd years ago. Um, and it, But it's still it's such a novel idea that, you know... Even back then, he's coming up with an idea that you only film the film from the perspective of Jimmy Stewart's uh, character's wheelchair bound. It's incredible. I love Rear Window. Um, I've seen Psycho, obviously, but I preferred Rear Window. Everyone goes on about Psycho, but for me, um, my favourite Hitchcock film is um, Rear Window. It's, But yeah, uh, Hitchcock's films obviously do seem like ages away, because they are. Yeah. They are. I mean, my granddad, your dad, would, would have been about five when yeah. Hitchcock was at the peak of his power. So, you know, that's, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, strongly enough, I mean, you, you know, my daughter, your sister, I mean, it reminds me in, in a similar way that because she's a horror fan, I was showing her some classic horror films and I showed her the Halloween, you know, John Carpenter's 1978 version of Halloween. Uh, and afterwards, you know, I asked her what, I thought, what she thought and she went, well, the music was great and the atmosphere was really, really creepy. I thought that was really good and I enjoyed it. Um, and it, in terms of being scary, not bad for an old film. And, I, and you know, you know, you hear that and you go, well, actually, yeah, it is an old film. It's 40 years old now. And, and, and that, into, that amount of time does date films, especially date Psycho, because after Psycho, lots of people went and did slasher films and each film's going to sort of take it up a notch from that. Yeah, so they, those they obviously do really the cage, but I reckon age, if Hitchcock was to be making films now, there'd be no other director close to him. Yeah, he, yeah. He's streets ahead of anyone back then. He'd be streets yeah. ahead yeah, of yeah, he's anyone phenomenally today if so he was still alive, if he was born. Yeah, I know what you mean. And so that, that's what makes Kaleidoscope really interesting, right? Because you would think that you get to 1960, 1963, and Hitchcock's had two massive hits like that after being the biggest director in the world in the 50s, right? And you think, right, this should be Hitchcock at the peak of his powers, yeah? But actually, his career started to go downhill quite fast from there. His next films were Marnie and Torn Curtain through the rest of the 60s. And 
people said they were starting to seem dated and it felt like it wasn't doing anything new and they weren't really big hits at the box office or, or critical hits. They weren't flops or anything, but he wasn't smashing it like he used to, right? Uh, and Hitchcock, the reason he did Kaleidoscope is he'd been inspired by a new breed of European directors like Antonioni and Francois Truffaut. And he actually wanted to ditch his sort of his old Hitchcock style and do something new. Um, you know, because he, he, I think he thought that what he was doing was a little bit dated and he wanted to go out on location in New York City and shoot with handheld cameras, completely nat naturalistic with unknown actors. And it meant what he'd be doing is ditching all his old influences because a lot of his old influences date back to the like 1930s. So no wonder it's people in the 60s were getting restless. It was all influenced by German expressionism. So you have that strident orchestra music, back projection when people are driving their car, which looks fake. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and everything's like been shot on sets. And he wanted to say, right, no, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm Hitchcock. I can do something different. Went out and, and wanted to do uh, almost a European style film. And if he'd done that, he would have been like on the forefront of the, of the new wave of Hollywood. You know, what started to come out with like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider in the late 60s. And then that 70s realism with like French Connection and Serpico. And, and it would have been more explicit and violent than it had ever been shown in film before because the, the censors are coming down. And he wanted to shoot the film from the point of view of the killer. Almost the whole film would be like shot from the point of view of the killer. So the yeah. killer would be the protagonist. No, it's, the it's interesting. But so I'm, I'm reading a little article about it now saying that why it couldn't get made and some of the stuff in it that was just too controversial for the time. And it's uh, suggestions that uh, the main character would have been gay um, and things like that. And because it's back in the 60s, he was trying, when was he trying to get this made? The 50s, 60s? Yeah. Yeah, and he just... Uh, 60s, he was targeting he, it. But stuff like that doesn't seem to phase us now but you know back then it's like it's almost a, they're all too prude yeah yeah and i mean it basically there would have been a huge amount of nudity compared to before um and and, and i think it was it was started going into like like serial killers obsessive behavior because it was going to he was going to set up the murders all the murders would be near water the serial killer was like obsessed with his mother and obsessed with water so one of the murders was going to take place by a waterfall another one was going to be by like you know the, the hudson river in in new york um Basically, Universal, although, although Hitchcock was kind of independent, he had an exclusive deal with Universal oh. to, to release all his films, and they just vetoed it. He, they, they just said, you're not doing this film. And, and that was a bit of a shock for Hitchcock, because he was used to getting to make whatever films he wanted to make, right? Even quite dark stuff like Psycho and The Birds, he, he got made. But he they just, honestly, they put their foot down and said, you're not making this. The biggest director in the world yes. was... Was, it's crazy was thing. unable to, to persuade the studio. The to films that get released nowadays are brutally offensive. And My, well, yeah, this is the you know talking about Halloween. It's interesting. And Halloween has been surpassed in terms of brutality now, but was shocking when it came out. So you know, it's like what we see now, decades later, is like step by step by step of more kind of explicit than that. But this would have been really shocking at the time. Um, so instead of making Kaleidoscope, right. Hitchcock did a film called Topaz, which was another of his kind of globe trotting spy thrillers. And all, and this actually was kind of a, a flop at the, the box office, or not quite a flop. Now Hitchcock, none of his films really flopped, but it was really looking dated. And people are saying, "Oh, Hitchcock's just repeating himself. He's not doing anything new." And and you know what? Hitchcock didn't want to do that film. He wanted to do something new, but he was being held back from doing it. So this is a this is a watershed moment from for Hitchcock, right? If he'd made right. this film Kaleidoscope, we could have had a final decade of Hitchcock where he changes everything up, and he could have a, a decade of breathing new life into his career and and a whole like, different way of doing things. And instead, he only makes two more films before he dies. Uh, one is called Frenzy, which took some of the ideas from Kaleidoscope about a serial killer and set them in London, but without the new filming style that he wanted to do. Um, and it, it's, it's okay, but it's, it's like he missed his shot to move at the times, and he's kind of right, stuck okay. with the old Hitchcock style. He's unable to break out from being Hitchcock. Do you know what I mean? Um, you, your granddad, by the way, really likes Frenzy okay. um, because it's shot on location in London in the early 70s and reminds him of when he was living there. And um, yeah. it, London doesn't look like that now. So it's a really interesting documentary of a time and place that's gone. Um, and apart from that, he did one more like a comedy thriller called Family Plot, and that's okay. So Hitchcock, instead of like a whole new interesting era of his career, his career is basically over in, in the 60s. Um, so to get an idea of what this film is like is quite hard because it's so different from his other films. But there is there is some footage online uh, of what he was trying to do, some audio, some video without audio and some photos of pre-production for the film. Frenzy gives you some idea because it focuses on the main character who's the killer. Um, but it doesn't have the style and approach. In terms of the style of film, 
You should probably look at Antonioni's blow up, which was a big influence on Hitchcock. Uh, Truffaut's the, the the 400 Blows was another one, and the Battle of Algiers, which is like a totally documentary style, very European style film from the early 60s. Um, if you wanted to get any kind of visual idea of what this film would have been like, what I would say about this film, though, and this, you know, m maybe I'm kind of going against the grain here. On the face of it, you would say, okay, a lost Hitchcock film, isn't that amazing? This is the one that could have changed everyone's perception of his late career, launched in a new decade instead of fading away. Of course, I wish it was made. I have some concerns, though, right? Because towards the latter part of Hitchcock's career, okay. some quite unpleasant stuff started to come out in his attitudes to women. Some of the some of the later films okay. that he's doing seem to involve him treating his lead actresses quite badly, on and allegedly off screen. And I, I feel like there's a risk that if you give freedom Hitchcock the freedom to show more violence, blood and nudity, right. it might have just ended up him with just being really voyeuristic, voyeuristic with violence against women. And because he, he had some real obsessions about sort of blondes and this kind of stuff and sort of almost like punishing his female characters. And and like you say, if Hitchcock was making films today, he'd be a, he'd be a filmmaker of this era. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But Hitchcock was Hitchcock was was a filmmaker of his era. Do you know what I mean? And I think his strength treading a fine line with the senses of, of and what he could get away with. And I think if you take right. away that tension, you might just have a long film about lots of naked blondes being tortured and killed. In a bit controversial here, but I mean, I think, you know, um, if you look at someone like Brian De Palma, he was very Hitchcock influenced, but he's like 30 or 40 years younger. So when he made his films in the 70s and 80s, they seemed appropriate for the time. And I wonder if Hitchcock was just, it was a bit out of time. Obviously, he's technically brilliant, right? So he could have pulled off the style. I just wonder if you if you let Hitchcock just let it all hang out. As, as who he was in, in an era when it was meant to be about the new generation making films for the new yeah, generation. Yeah, you do, you do get that. It as might like the, not the one that got away, but... Do you know what I mean? That's a shame. I, didn't, I, didn't, I knew Hitchcock had fallings out with um, his lead, <laughs> leading ladies and stuff like that. Um, he was a bit upset. He was a bit obsessive about but, his leading ladies in, in a way that was a bit weird. I think he would be a bit U-tree nowadays. Yeah. But if, thought, if he was around yeah. nowadays, I think he'd be a different guy. He'd be a guy from a different time. Do you know what I mean? I mean, so, I mean, looking at it, it's it's a fascinating idea. On the one hand, I would love to see it. And on the other hand, you might think perhaps it's better for Hitchcock's main statement in this genre to be psycho and for others to take it from there. We'll never know. But, I mean, it is one of those things. It's it's a fascinating idea that might, yeah, uh, might have it's like, interesting played into the wrong hands. If you anything that Hitchcock makes is usually brilliant, even, you know, like his last and later films. But yeah, you'd hope not. Um, but I, I genuinely didn't know yeah. that he had those offset type of being horrible yeah. like when i think of directors being difficult with actually I, the first thing i think of is stanley kubrick with her name escapes me the shirley Duvall, sh sh no shelly deval is that not him mm -hmm. um which was in the service of the film which doesn't make it right but you know what i mean he, he was doing what he thought would give the best performance like i said some of this is only alleged there's a film called the girl which 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 claims to portray hitchcock's obsession with tippy hedron who was his co-star, who was his leading lady in The Birds and Marnie. Um, I, look, like I say, I'm, I'm kind of just, you know, trying to put the contrary view as well. I think this is fascinating. And, and, and there's plenty of, you know, Hitchcock actually said he made his films for a female audience and he had a huge female audience. So maybe it's overplayed, but I think it's something yes. that you can't entirely ignore what was, when you talk about what Hitchcock was that making a film that film, features a lot of girl, women. Who's in it? Because I remember they released two films about Hitchcock in the space. Yes. One one was called Hitchcock, I think, and was Anthony Hopkins, and the girl is Toby Jones. And I think was it Sienna Miller, maybe playing Tippy Hedren, and she's very good. I mean, I, I like I say, it's a, it's, it shouldn't surprise us that much because we've got much more modern uh, directors and and have, have you know got on have, have made headlines for all the wrong reasons. So it shouldn't be that surprising that there might be a a great director from the old days who had uh, tendencies, yeah, shall you. we say, but. You know, it's just one of those things. It's, I think it's probably open for discussion, if you see what I mean. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we let off some steam about the lack of new ideas in Hollywood and the way they love to rehash old stories at the expense of new ones. We do, of course, have remakes we love because they were done by people with a genuinely fresh vision that justified a new film. 
What we tend to be talking about in this feature is some soulless, unimaginative executive wasting everyone's time picking over an older great film that should have been left alone and stinking up our screens with two hours of expensive, redundant shite. This month, we Oof. featured just such an example. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll tell the audience about it as a bit of a cautionary tale. We're obviously all familiar with the original Charlton Heston classic about humans finding themselves on a planet where apes are the dominant intelligent species and humans are herded and exploited like dumb animals. Uh, it's based on a satirical French novel by Pierre Boulle, who also wrote Bridge on the River Kwai. Huge hit on release in 1968 and is seen as an all-time classic of science fiction cinema. Now, to be fair, this is a story that other people went back to and reused a number of times. There's four sequels in the original series. There were two TV series based on it, one of which was animated. There's been a series of comic books based on it. And most recently, they kind of rebooted the franchise with a reimagination of the origin story. So it's not about saying the original should have been completely left alone, right? It's just that this is a really uninspired remake, the 2001 version. And it's yeah, kind of typical uh, of some of the crap that was still coming so out in the early this 2000s. Was the this was the time when Tim Burton was making films in the 90s and he had some sort of promise about him. And was this not the first film that he made out with his, because he's very cukey. This was the, the kind of the first yeah. film. Well, no, actually, he did, he did uh, Ed Wood, which um, we both really like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I see, I, I think, it, it's interesting because on the one hand, Tim Burton had done like big commercial films before because he did two of the, you know, the two, first two Batman films at the bottom. Yeah. But people kind of went, okay, these are big films that are designed to do well at the box office and everything, but they've got his style about them. And everything he, everything he did in the 90s was was really good. Um, I, look, I, I'm not a big fan of, of Mars Attacks, but Edward is amazing. Uh, I mean, Edward Scissorhands is really good. You know, he had a great, a great, a great 90s, and then he came out with this, and it's just... It's yeah, no that's, that's the thing, but you, you do notice with Tim Burton that they, honestly, after he does the big commercial this. films, he then kind of reverts to his type. So he was, you know, he was doing um, Frank and Weenie and Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and then yeah, yeah, he does, and then he does Beetlejuice, which is like a very Tim Burton film, and then he does Batman, and then he does Edward Scissorhands, yeah, and then he does Batman I mean, Returns, I mean, and then he's I, done with Batman, I, I, he does I, Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow, and then he does Planet of the Apes. It can, that film sticks out like a sore thumb on his yeah. filmography. Yeah, I mean, look, I got to say, I prefer early Tim Burton to late Tim Burton. I think recent Tim Burton films have got far too much of Johnny Depp with hey, what new accent are you going to do, Johnny? What new facial hair are you going to use, Johnny? And I, I, I'm not really interested in it, but like, yeah. like you say, this is really a very not Tim Burton film. I mean, I mean, the, the background to this is that this film were knocked around for at least 10 years before finally getting made, which is a sure sign they shouldn't have bothered in the first place. Right. Um, there was some director called Adam Rifkin who apparently had some ideas for a film that would be a, more of a sequel than a remake. Um, he couldn't come up with a, a, an idea that the studio liked, so he'd be backed out. Um, when I was reading up on this, apparently the studio wanted to crowbar in a comedy sequence where the apes are trying to play baseball. So that's what the studio was trying to do. Uh, and then, you know, mid-90s Chris Columbus was going to do it with Arnie in the lead role, but they dropped out. Um, various other people were involved. Oliver Stone, Roland Emmerich after Independence Day did well. For a while, they wanted James Cameron to do it. Peter Jackson, <laughs> Michael Bay. Just, it's probably, it's probably a bit better watch than what Tim Burton made. I'm not going to lie. Other, beating each other up and then exploding. Yeah, I mean, look, this is, look, Fox did this a few times. 20th Century Fox ran about this time, did, would do this. They'd spend years trying this idea, dropping out, trying another idea, dropping out. And eventually they just give us a look, fuck, let's do something we've committed. Let's do it. And in this instance, they just said, let's do a, a remake. I mean, it's the reason Alien 3 didn't work out as well as it should, because they spent years pissing about. And then, you know, they kind of threw it at Tim Burton. And I think Tim Burton afterwards said he wasn't given as much time as he would have liked and less money. And I think at that point, they just wanted to put something out. It was almost everyone was fulfilling contractual obligations, right? So the film itself, right? Um, Mark Wahlberg is the central character now. His entire performance is channeled through his trademark confused frown. Um, this is one of three remakes he did within a couple of years of each other. The others are The Truth About Charlie, where he's a poor substitute for Cary Grant. The Italian Job, which we covered previously, where he's a poor substitute for Michael Caine. And this one, where he's a poor substitute for Charlton Heston. So at this stage in his career, essentially, Mark Wahlberg was operating as a kind of cinematic bus replacement service. And I, just to clarify, I think Mark, Mark Wahlberg's a really good actor, right? I think he's been great in The Fight of the Departed, Boogie yeah. Nights. What he's not is the person who can carry a film. Yeah, I don't see him as much of a leading man. Good. Do you know I what know, he's, but that's he's what they try to shoehorn him in as. His best roles have been um, no. where he compliments other things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, this, is, 
this is the era they tried to make him into that. Uh, oh, wow, that's a bold choice. He actually backed out of Ocean's Eleven to be in this film. Yeah, and he he made way in Ocean's Eleven for the for the interchangeable Matt Damon to play his part. So I mean, honestly, they just said we'll get someone who looks like Mark Wahlberg to play the part for that. Well, who is he going to play the Harry Potter franchise? A role in the Harry Potter franchise to be in this. Oh, well, interestingly, he was going to be playing Snape. I mean, look, I, I think I think Harry Potter did better for having Alan Rickman in that part instead of Tim Roth, as much as I like Tim Roth. But yeah, Tim Roth turned down a role in one of the most successful. I, you you are full of little nuggets to today. I did not know. this Planet of the Apes remake. That blew my mind because Tim Roth. I love Tim Roth. Tim Roth's great, um, but he, Alan Rickman is just <laughs> isn't he? He's just got the voice, the demeanour. He's got everything. Lit. But that would have been interesting, Tim Roth. Yeah, yeah look, it's one of those ones. It's just the whole like you know alternative casting. You'll never know what it would have been like otherwise. But yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, like, like we say, we're, we're, neither of us are big, you know, could see any reason to make this film. I mean, one of the reasons you might do a remake of a science fiction film, right, is that a new film can break new ground with the special effects. But um, this film doesn't do that, right? Because no one looks back at the effects in the original film and thinks they're a bit wonky or dated now. It's like, you know, it's not like Jaws, where despite Jaws being a great film, you think the shark looks fake now. But no one thought the special effects needed uh, needed sprucing up in the original film. It's just, you know, you've got a spaceship scene at the start, but it's not that important. So who cares if a more recent film yeah. gives you I think effects what, for that? And the ape effects, I've got to say, I didn't think the ape effects were very good. In what, makes these, what makes these films I like is how good weird. Like the reboots were. Because I think those reboots were fucking awesome. I lo- those films get slept on. Those films were great. Uh, yeah, spot on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought I thought that that, that whole new franchise was really good because it wasn't just a remake. It kind of built on the storyline within the universe. Andy, sir. And the ideas are good. The scripts are good. The CGI is groundbreaking with the motion capture. There was a there was a genuine reason to do those films, and they're not even they're not even remakes. They just yeah. expand um, the universe. Honestly, it's an object lesson. See, what they should have yeah, done. Yeah, this film now looks a lot worse than it. Planet of the Apes. But yeah, I mean, the, this yeah, not just that. They made a terrible mess of the story. I mean. It's sort of the same storyline as the first, but the big reveal about what planet they're on, which is the killer ending of the original <laughs> film, is dropped in the middle, Marky Mark frowns, and then they hop off to the next scene. I couldn't believe it, you know? And you've got... Tim Roth is like the totally generic villain. He's wasted. Um, Helena, Bonham, uh, Helena Bonham Carter's character is really annoying. She's the well-meaning liberal from a rich family who thinks humans shouldn't be oppressed, which is every bit as smug as it sounds. And apart from that, it's just running and, and jumping. And then the portraits is... A very drummy soundtrack. It's just like... Oh, the exact okay. same... It's like a parallel really fucking universe, isn't it? Or something like that? Well, so first, first of all, right, the, the, there's one twist ending, which is from the original book, and they didn't do it in the film. And when yeah. I watched it, I remember thinking, okay, everything up to now has been mostly shit, but it was quite effective, the first twist. Yeah? It's like, you know, because you know, he's been through time thousands of years, so maybe he comes back to his world, but actually the, the apes have still taken over. I, I, I get it, right? But then they throw that other twist in the end, which makes absolutely uh-huh. no sense, because that's, spoiler alert for everyone, that's meant it's to be Tim Roth on the, um, on the Abraham Lincoln throne. Uh, yeah. No, that's... It's, just, it's a dumbass, a really dumb ending. So, I mean, look, the, the thing is, the film did really good business. Well, quite... Well, very good business at the box office. It was the... Ninth biggest film that year. But it's very interesting. If you look at the box office for 2001, the films that came out that were bigger than Planet of the Apes show that there was a new era coming in. Because yeah. the top films that year were the first Harry Potter, the first Lord of the Rings, Monsters, Inc. and Shrek. So yeah, I think it's, it's, the, the pro- it's just it's not know, memorable. It's, it's, it's memorable because it's shite. But what was good about the Charlton Heston one in 68 was obviously the line, get your yeah. hands off me, you damn dirty ape. It's a cool moment, and then in the the reboots, okay, it's not as punchy as that line, but you've still got you know Caesar yeah. at his home, and you've got him sh- the first time he speaks in English to um in front of the other people, uh, in front of the like the kind of militia groups. It's 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 well done. It's polished. It just felt it, it just felt like he'd half arsed it. Yeah. And what was yeah yeah the, the, those films the it, ones you're talking about it was they so were smartly done like the first one was they, they okay it's a bit of an all these plots just now like, but it's actually just, they're on earth they just, just crash landed but the new ones were they start with um james franco is a scientist who's trying to find a cure yeah. for alzheimer's because his dad has it and they're testing it on chimpanzees and the drugs to repair the brain but what it's doing to these chimps and these um, uh these apes is making them smarter that's a fucking awesome yeah, like, yeah. universe you just created for yourself yeah it's, it's yeah. like 
it's how things end up, right? When so you know, when someone makes one decision and it's you know unintended well, consequences, this one, right? This abomination. Yeah, those are really interesting films. Like, I, I mean, I've, I've I was giving you a bit of trivia about it. There was so many, franchise. there was so much interest in this film, and there was a lot of hype about it because there were heaps of people attached to it. James Cameron was attached. I think Oliver Stone was attached at one point. And there was a video game lined yeah. up, and then the video game was going to pull out because uh, James Cameron uh, detached himself from the project. Yeah. yeah. So there was there wasn't any shortage of better directors than Tim Burton interested in this film. Yeah. So for Tim Burton to take the film, he's got to have a kind of interest in making it, and this film just feels like a kind of I'm not interested kind of film. And it's hard to hate it as much as some of the other remakes that that we've done. It's just like, oh, guys, you shouldn't have bothered. We're going to take an intermission now, sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation, which this month is about the closure of many cinemas, following the latest delay to the release of the new Bond film, and what it means for the future of film. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. The episode was recorded and edited using Ankara Feminine Audacity. And anything that sounded good was down to them, and anything that sounded crap was down to our fucking twat of a broadband provider. The music was Mistake by The Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of Reel 2 of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for another helping of nerdy chat in just a minute. See you on the other side. <laughs>